Hi, I'm Jana Panaritis, and you're listening to the AgeWise Podcast, where we give you strategies for aging well and wisely. And how do you do that when on top of scrambling to keep up with the demands of your own life, you're also caring for someone else in your life? Well, we're here to help. Each week, we hear from people just like you who share caregiving stories from the field, how you cope, what you've learned, and how care has changed your life. We also hear from professionals in the field of aging and people using media to creatively address major health issues and challenge widespread assumptions about getting older. So stick around for some straight talk on aging in all its unpredictable glory. How do you get good at getting older in a culture obsessed with youth? That's American culture, in case there's any doubt. Well, it turns out some people are pretty good at aging well, including today's guest. Elizabeth Mead Howard is an award-winning reporter and former lecturer at the University of Virginia. Her essays and articles have appeared in many publications, including the Washington Post, USA Today, Ms. Magazine, and People Magazine, to name just a few. Elizabeth has also produced educational and documentary films, but today we're going to talk about her new book, Aging Famously, Follow Those You Admire to Living Long and Well. It's a collection of essays based on interviews she conducted with more than 30 older adults, some famous, like former newsman Walter Cronkite and the legendary photographer Gordon Parks, and some not so famous, but well-known in their local community. Elizabeth Howard joins us today from Charlottesville, Virginia. Elizabeth, welcome to the AgeWise podcast. Well, thank you. I'm delighted to be here. So your book is dedicated to the memory of your parents, Everard and Virginia Mead, who you write really knew how to live. Can you give us some examples of what you mean by this and um, tell us a little bit about your parents and growing up? Well, they actually met. My father said he only had 10 minutes of freedom in his life, (laughs) and that was because (laughs) his parents drove him to UVA. And he had a room. He rented a room in my grandmother's house, and he met my mother on the way into the house. And I guess they kind of fell for each other. And they went through school and then uh, went to New York, as I said in the book, and on a dream and a dime. They didn't have any money, and their parents thought they were crazy. And they were like out of an old 30s movie. You know, they lived (laughs) over a Japanese restaurant, and dad thought he was going to be an actor, and mother thought she was going to write some great American novel, and anyway, neither thing happened, but they ended up well, and um, they I think they lived well because they were sort of adventurous people. They were willing to take a certain amount of risk, and maybe they were innocent in that era, too. You know, they mm-hmm. just sort of went off. The other line in the book that I liked was when my father was trying to get a job he, as a writer or an actor, and um, it was very tough times. It was during the Depression, and Somebody suggested, because it was a creative field, that he go into advertising, and he didn't know much about advertising, mm-hmm. but he said he would try, and so he went around and interviewed for office boy jobs, and they said they were only taking uh, Ivy League people, and he said, well, I think a guy from UVA can lick a stamp as well as a guy from Harvard or Yale. <laughs> I so, loved that line, too. <laughs> Right, got the job. (laughs) Right, that's awesome. And he came up through the business with some pretty interesting people. He did. He was an office boy with Pat Weaver, who ended up being Sigourney Weaver's father. And Mm -hmm. they were, you know, kids together, sort of running around New York. Uh, But my parents are both Virginians and, um, you know, came back here when my father, 
was only 40. He sort of retired early and then taught at the university. But they were all Virginia types. But they said I had a good time in L.A. and New York, too. Yeah. But still, it takes a lot of courage to leave New York. It's an exciting city. And you have to be thinking clearly to, to say, okay, we're out of here. Now's the time. Um, yeah. Uh, well, that's where I, they were willing to take a certain amount of risk. Right. Uh, my father had really done quite well at that point in his career, and my mother wanted to come back to Virginia and make me a Southern lady, which sort of worked, <laughs> not exactly, but anyway, <laughs> uh, they thought that was a good time to leave the city, and they had built a house which they had paid for with his New York money, and instead of going up the ladder, they saved their money and put it towards a house here, uh-huh. and then when they came here, they, Daddy had to sort of readjust his life and figure out what to do and it took some doing because he was back and forth for a while but eventually ended up writing and teaching here and and you know i think it paid off he lived till 90 years old so it must have worked he made the right choice now if we could talk we could talk for a moment about your mother who died suddenly in her sleep as i read which was so devastating um you wrote that that your dad described her death as feeling like quote a black hole in space and I was reminded of the fact that, you know, my parents were married for 56 years, and my father died in 2009, and they had a very romantic marriage, my parents. And, you know, in those kinds of marriages, the death of a spouse is, I think, even harder. I'm not saying that death is not hard, but I was right. really moved by that. I wondered if you could tell us a little bit more about how your dad managed to move forward after the loss of your mom. Well, I think he he probably never really got over it, but he was relatively young. He was, the great family scandal was that my mother was a year older than my father. Same with mine. (laughs) Which is totally ridiculous, but at the time it seemed like a big deal. And they were kids, as I said, you know, he met her on his way into college. So they had always been together, and they were both only children, and so they were like brother and sister, too. I mean, they were very close, and... My father was a very handsome man and sort of a romantic, and my mother was a nice-looking woman, too, but she was the practical one. She mm-hmm. was the one who kind of said, this is what we're going to do. So they were a good pair, mm-hmm. and I think he was quite undone when she died and, and vulnerable, and a lot of women showed up with casseroles, you know, sort of immediately. Because <laughs> I'm sorry, that's just such a great friend. A lot of women showed up with casseroles. <laughs> Why almost immediately, you know, and he was pretty vulnerable to them. And uh, so I have to say, he had a lot of ladies friends after my mother died. He lived nearly, you know, 20 years and there were a lot of women and some inappropriate. (laughs) Uh (laughs) But, I, you know, thank God he didn't marry any of them. Uh But Hmm. they were there for him. And he also, I think the main thing really was he never stopped working. Mm-hmm. And he wrote these books, but he also was associated and taught with a business school here, the Darden Business School at UVA. And he would get up every morning. I mean, at first I noticed that after, immediately after death, he kind of let himself go, his clothes and everything. And he didn't shave his, I mean, he was really devastated, but yeah. he, he did get it back together. And then he would literally, you know, get up every morning with his briefcase and go to the Darden School, and when he was too old to really teach anymore, he wrote for the alumni magazine, and then after that, he continued to go and use the library and wrote there, and so he dressed nicely, and he went off to work in his mind, 
every day. He had a destination. He didn't just pad around in his slippers at home. And I think that made an enormous difference. Yeah. You started having concerns about him living alone at a certain point. Um, yes, I did. Yeah. Well, he, he stayed at home. He was an independent person, but I could see, you know, there was some memory loss. And I also thought possibly he had some mini strokes. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. You could see a little loss, but he was really quite a brilliant man. And he was very funny and he had a marvelous, not just a sense of humor, but he had this great vocabulary. And mm-hmm. I could feel him sort of working the muscles of his brain sometime. And, you know, if he couldn't find a word or something, mm-hmm. you could just almost hear the muscles cranking, you know, to get what he wanted. So I think he worked very hard to stay part of life and to use what he still had. But at at a certain point, you know, I was very concerned. So I did urge him to have somebody in the house with him, which he did reluctantly. They had a student who I don't think really did much of anything except smell the house with Chinese cooking. But (laughs) anyway, it was a comfort to me to know there was somebody there. Yeah. And I could call and say, would you check on my father? Mm -hmm. And uh, then we saw a lot of him too. But then in the last year of his life, he was terribly ill with viral encephalitis, which most people would have died from, but he was pretty strong. So when he got out of the hospital, he was very compromised and had had some brain damage, and uh, that was pretty rough. But he did stay in his own home with help, and, uh, you know, that's where he wanted to be. And so we just took the money he had and thought if it all goes, it all goes, you know. So he lived at home for about six months before he died. Mm -hmm. So you wrote that your father's death, you wrote, his death and my abrupt elevation to family elder marked a critical turning point for me. You're an only child. And so how did you adapt to your father's death? Of course, it was devastating for you, but uh, tell us more about it. Well, you you know, it was funny. As I mentioned, I did go to a grief group for a while. I'm not a group person much, and I I didn't say much, but because I felt like I had a good relationship with my father. He lived a long life. He had an interesting life. And it wasn't a tragedy. It felt very sad to me, but it wasn't like he was 25. So I didn't say much because I thought, thought, well, maybe people who recently lost their spouses or their children or something, it's a bigger loss. But it it did feel quite devastating to me. And uh, my mother had died quite a few years before. And I guess the old journalist in me, it didn't start the book idea immediately, but I guess I was sort of looking around for people to share the experience with. So I I sort of started quietly with my next door neighbor and places to go that were sort of a safe haven. And I always have liked older people. Even when I was a little kid, I liked to hang out with my grandmother and some of the other older people I knew. And um, so it kind of evolved. And then it seemed like a, a good book idea or a good articles or, you know, it took me an awful long time to write this because I stopped and started and did other things. And uh, mm-hmm. it didn't really shape in my mind for a long time what I was doing. <laughs> you know? uh-huh. <laughs> it just came together. And then I started to worry because a lot of them died. In fact, one publisher was quite interested in it. And, and she said, well, the book is depressing. And I said, what? She said, well, everyone dies. And I said, well, I don't know what I can do about that. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. <laughs> but then I decided that that was okay because these people stay in you and their lessons, and particularly the ones that you felt affection for. I think of them almost daily and their lessons and what they did and um, have some health concerns. 
then I'm okay. But recently I was thinking about what Ed Koch says, don't take me in salami slices, you know, he's going to take me. You know, and I think about that all the time. So these little things that people said or how they lived or how they acted are with me. And uh, I feel that that's the message of the book, that other people can find their own elders that they respect and like, and whether it's their family members or the neighbors down the street, and incorporate it in their later lives. You know, it really is an enormous comfort and sort of a bolstering effect, I think. Well, you had access to some really interesting people, and I'd like to talk about some of the more famous ones. Of course, the less famous ones are equally impressive, but for listeners, I think it would be really interesting to hear, for instance, your experience of meeting Walter Cronkite. Tell us about that. I mean, he was what, 87 years old when you met him? Yeah. Tell us well, about that. Well, you know, I was a little intimidated, and I'm my, in my mind, he was this enormous man with very imposing voice and presence and framed in a TV set. Yeah. So <laughs> when I met him, <laughs> you know, in black and white in those days, you know, here he was in living color and deaf and much shorter than I had hmm. imagined. He was actually mm-hmm. kind of my eye level. So hmm. it was like oh my, he's a real person. <laughs> and uh, then we sat down, and he was deaf, and so I was hollering at him, and he was friendly, and I thought, well, this is going to be okay, you know. Uh-huh. So it was enjoyable, and he was relatively easy to talk to, even though I had to holler at him. But uh, huh. I was impressed with him, because even after that, he went on and continued to do things. And I think these people had within them drive and ambition maybe more than most people and so as their health diminished in their years they couldn't do as much but they were still focused on the things that mattered to them mm-hmm. and maybe it was fewer things but that energy was still there and maybe fame propelled them to some extent but the interest I don't think waned so whatever they had left they were still wanting to give it you know right i was going to ask if you noticed a pattern among the folks you interviewed and it sounds like you did and you just reflected on that and i thought it was interesting that you wrote that as a celebrity cronkite had more expectations and more resources than most seems right. to be a critical piece of the puzzle although even people without resources can continue to live well well um, one interesting conversation that my husband and i had i use the word risk a lot in the mm-hmm, book and mm-hmm. a lot of them use it themselves and maybe i saw them as risk takers and and my husband was saying, I don't think they thought of themselves as risk takers. These were people who had always been doing the extra thing or, or you know, why not try this or why not try that? Mm-hmm. I'm willing to do this. And so it didn't just suddenly come upon them at 75 or 80. Right. They always had that will to, to take that extra risk, I guess, which is interesting way of looking at it. Like one woman, after her husband died, she went back to seeing if she could get her equity card and go back to acting, which she'd done as a young woman. Hmm. And she got her card, and she did it, and she went to auditions. And, you know, at that age, I think it's your ego. I mean, you're competing with much younger people. And particularly in the acting business, they say, out of here, you know, this yeah. isn't, you're not the right one. And so you're willing to take that sort of emotional dismissal or whatever to your ego. That mm-hmm. takes a lot of confidence and a lot of courage. And I think they all seem to have that, or they're willing to try something else. The other woman who produced a documentary film on the jazz makers, you know, she'd never done that before, but she'd done something in a live field as a radio producer. Mm -hmm. And she thought, well, 
what the hell, I'll just try this, and ended up getting an Academy Award nomination. Yeah. So I don't know whether that's risk-taking or just that willingness to try something else, and if it fails, it fails, but it doesn't end everything for you, you know. Mm-hmm. How old was the gal who went and got her equity card? She when? was in her 70s, anyway. I'm not okay. sure exactly where. I was. Mm-hmm. But she continued doing voiceovers, and she was also willing to even play stereotypes of old women and look sort of foolish and hmm. uh, she was quite a handsome woman but she didn't mind doing that whatever it took he was willing to do it that's really yeah, brave that pretty gutsy yeah very yeah. gutsy well i have to ask you about meeting gordon parks because he was a really an icon of mine when he was living and still is as i mentioned to you when we first chatted i did go to that photo exhibit in washington half past autumn while mr parks was yeah. still living he was 90 years old when you met him Tell us about that. Well, I have to say he was maybe my favorite interview because mm-hmm. I'm very interested in photography and I had seen that show and I'd seen other shows of his and I really revered his work and just as a photographer, he's such an interesting person. Mm-hmm. So I had tried several times through his gallery to reach him and they said he wasn't well or he wasn't interested in an interview and then mm-hmm. I somehow contacted his assistant who was helpful and I think I might have been in New York when she said, okay, you know, he could see you today if you, it was one of these short notice things. Right. So I was thrilled. I was absolutely thrilled and a little nervous and he was an absolute sweetie. He was very relaxed, and he uh, was drinking a smoothie when I got off the elevator. And he, <laughs> you know, said, "Would you like some of this?" And he had a baseball cap on backwards. And he was very sort of cozy person. And he spoke very quietly. It was a little hard to understand, but he, you know, kind of welcomed me in. His son was there, and his wife, and we chatted. And then his assistant was very protective of him so she came after an hour or so and said that's enough and he kind of winked and he said you can hang around and <laughs> anyway we were we, I felt like it was kind of fun to talk to him you know yeah even as old as he was he was a bit of a flirt mm. and he he liked women and he was very relaxed he was in his own beautiful apartment and um you know he was just very generous with his see let me take a picture of him and uh he even gave me a photograph which is an amazing thing wow that was a real thrill it really was yeah i just want to say for listeners who may not know who gordon parks is gordon parks was the son of a dirt farmer in fort scott kansas sent to live with his stepfather's family in minnesota after his father died he was kicked out he was on his own and you wrote that he realized survival came from working hard he picked up photography music writing by happenstance just to work and then he got a fellowship with the Farm Security Administration. He came up with Walker Evans, Dorothea Lang, educating viewers, as you wrote, about poverty and discrimination in the rural South. Parks was Life Magazine's first African-American photographer and produced great work, including his iconic image, American Gothic, Washington, D.C. Just a little backgrounder for folks who don't know who Gordon Parks is. Uh, sorry to interrupt no, you, absolutely. Elizabeth. So and, go ahead. Well, I think a lot of these people, I mean, actually one of the, uh, an agent I talked to a long time ago, she said, you know, these people are not known to everybody. I mean, I'm of their age now, but she said, you have to fill in the blanks and their biographies and make them interesting. So when we see them as older people, 
we understand why they're still interesting or why their lives don't matter. Mm-hmm. You, know, you can't just say Gordon Parks, comma, photographer. You have to put it in the context of who he was. Mm-hmm. And so these people, when I met them, were mostly pretty diminished, but there was still that spark there, and you respected their lives for what they had done, and they were still trying to maintain their right. art. Yeah. Right. I'm going to indulge myself just for a moment and share with you that I met Betty Davis just before she died. Oh, and oh, it, wow. Yeah, it happened because I was working on the Kennedy Center Honors. I worked for years in television production, and I was a researcher for the oh. Kennedy Center Honors the year she was an honoree. My producer wanted me to be with her during a meeting that we took in order to fill her in on the weekend's events because the Kennedy Center Honors is a national commemoration and there's a weekend of activity and state dinner and it's really intense. But anyway, my producer and I went to meet her at the Ritz-Carlton, New York. Miss Davis was on her way to Deauville, France to accept an award. And I brought with me a still from the movie All About Eve and um, (laughs) she signed it and it was incredible. But when you said... You know, even though they're diminished, we have to remember that they did amazing things. And when I first met her at the Ritz-Carlton, she was so tiny. But as soon as she started chain-smoking cigarettes and then (laughs) talking, and I thought, oh, yeah, there's Betty Davis. But that was just an incredible experience for me. So I can imagine that meeting these people for you must have been amazing. Well, it was. And, you know, it was a privilege. It really was. When I left uh, Stanley Kunitz, apartment. I mean, he was nearly a hundred. And I I felt like I'd had almost like a religious experience just Uh being with him. He didn't say much, but there was something so dignified and sort of sad, but sort of inspiring at the same time. Mm -hmm. And I remember standing in the hall after I'd left waiting for the elevator and just crying as weeping. You're thinking, you know, I was, this won't happen again. And I was in the presence of somebody who made a difference. I mean, I just felt it was such a privilege, you know, to have met him. Tell the listeners who Stanley Kunitz is. Well, he's a poet. He was a, he was poet laureate twice, I believe, and he was the oldest poet laureate and uh, a remarkable man who wrote many collections of poetry. He lived in New York. He helped young poets. He was very gracious in that way. Mm-hmm. So how do you define aging well? And has your definition changed over the course of time? Well, you know, that's an interesting question because I was thinking about when you're young, you know, you think you want to live an old, long life. Many uh, want to be an old person. And then when you actually get to be one, (laughs) (laughs) the the, the culture sort of dismisses you or you're invisible or you're either sort of a cute old person doing, you know, hang gliding at 90 or something, though you'll get those. But I think this culture is not too generous to the elders, you know, even though we think that's what we want when we're young. But when, when you get there, you know, it's more painful physically. There are a lot of, and a lot of loss, friends and family who gone. So, yeah, I think it's changed. And I think it does take a lot of courage on all levels from, you know, the physical health problems as well as all the losses. And I think one way is to try to continue in the world as much as you possibly can and to make friends with younger people and just to stay in the mix in any way that you can. But, yeah, sure, my view has changed, and I have a lot more respect for older people. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you did a really great job in this book of interspersing it with academic but not too wonky information. One thing in particular I noted was a quote that you 
had from a Trinity professor, Michael Curl. Yeah. You, you quoted him as saying, we're always in the process of being old, but there's no one to instruct us in the process. Right. We need role models. Well, these people were very instructive, I mean, in every sense of the word, starting with my own grandmother. Yeah, yeah. right. I know. That was so fascinating. So that tell us about your, your grandmother. Well, she was a widow in her 40s, and it's interesting to look at photographs of her now. She looks about 80, when you know, and they wore black, and they sort of became instant old people, but uh-huh. she was very perky under that. Uh, her husband died very suddenly. He was a journalist. So she could have lived with her father and a little girl that she had, my mother, but she decided, never having worked, that she would offer her sort of innate counseling abilities to the University of Virginia, and she marched herself up to the YMCA, and they hired her. <laughs> and she was there for about 40 years, and oh, the kind of bossy little character that was ended up being much beloved, and she was still at it in, in her 80s, and got up and let the doctor in after she'd had a heart attack and had another one. I mean, so I had a lot of examples of some feisty people who just kind of said, come on. Bring it. Bad it, you know. <laughs> <Right>. Yeah. <laughs> Don't sit home. Right. You know, and that's a really good point that you make in the context of how we think about older people. I mean, my mom is 88. And she's endured in the last two years uh, uh, operation on her left hip. She broke her hip. She had a total reverse shoulder surgery at age 87. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think people have this idea that older people should just go off into the sunset and just disappear. Right. And some people just don't want to participate at all. But, you know, my mom really wants to live. And she's feisty. You know, she's got some dementia. But yeah. she's still got a lot of marbles, and she wants to live. So the will to live is really powerful. Oh, um, I think so. I think so. And I think, it, you know, there is some science that positive energy and that will does actually affect us. I mean, it sends off whatever the endorphins are. It does make a difference. And if we get too blue and too sedentary, the body does sort of react to that as well. But sometimes it's hard to give ourselves the positive messages. I don't think people should feel guilty if they don't feel like they can get up and fight the world. I agree. I mean, everybody has to do it their own way. So what would you say to someone who fears getting older? Well... I think the first thing is to get out of your house, whether it's volunteering or working or whatever. And uh, I was sort of went through a withdrawal, and I thought, you know, you got to get back out there. And as a writer, you know, you're you're alone a lot, yeah. and I thought that wasn't so good. And my kids are grown up and everything, and so I volunteer with the International Rescue Committee hmm. here, and they're the refugees that come and are placed in the community, and I just help a teacher who teaches them English, but, you know, it, that's really amazing to see these people who are much younger than I am, but what the suffering they've been through and how happy they are to be here and what they're willing to have gone through to start over, and I wouldn't suggest that for everybody, but I think just seeing other people's lives helps you in getting older yourself and sort of value what you have. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you wake up in the morning, what gets you going? How do you stay motivated? Well, I don't know. Some mornings it's pretty slow. (laughs) (laughs) I eat the same thing for breakfast every day. I don't have to think about it, so maybe that's part of it. I try to have something going. I mean, I always have some writing project. or I try to create work if it's not there because I feel a little panicked if it's completely clean roster. It's like, oh, dear, Mm -hmm. what am I going to do, you know? Mm -hmm. So I do feel, I mean, other people do more athletics, 
or they play bridge. Whatever, it works. I think if you can do your body and your mind, somehow keep them going, even if it's just walking or getting out is probably the best thing for aging. Mm-hmm. You volunteered in a nursing home, is that right? Well, a while ago. That while was ago. a little too depressed. Well, I'm not sure. doing that now. Um, I mean, it can be, but you, as you wrote, were paired with a gentle, valiant man who collected poems, yeah. and he taught you how to say goodbye. That was just so moving. Well, he he was an amazing man. I did feel we had a very close relationship, and I had taken that volunteer job on reluctantly, and then I got lucky and had this wonderful man that we had a very close relationship, and we used to drive around the country, and he would sort of joke that he was running away from the nursing home. <laughs> always felt badly taking it back, but uh-huh. we had some hmm. wonderful times together. Mm-hmm. And what did he teach um, you? Well, he taught me patience for one thing i mean there was no privacy in that nursing home and and i that's something that i value a lot mm-hmm. and he was able to be respectful and sort of considerate even in this really difficult really a rough place in a lot of ways so he kept his dignity which i thought was really remarkable mm-hmm. and he was patient and kind and and a generous hearted person I mean, even under the worst of circumstances mm. Well, I want to ask if your kids, how they view aging, do they view it differently than you? And tell us a bit about your kids. I know they're grown. Well, that's interesting. Uh, you know, I don't, I I think they're starting to worry about it. They're middle-aged mm-hmm. and uh, they talk about it. And uh, my son is not married. He has a lovely girlfriend mm-hmm. who has two children. And I think he would like to have had a child of his own and probably won't. So there's there's that. You know, mm-hmm. and you, sometimes people, he's a filmmaker and a, mm-hmm. in advertising as well, as my, like my father. Mm-hmm. So, you know, mm-hmm. maybe that got to be the priority in his life, and now he's sort of thinking, hmm, <laughs> I don't know uh-huh. exactly. I, sure. I can't put words in his mouth. Mm-hmm. My daughter homeschools her daughter and is preoccupied with that, but the daughter is now 13, and my daughter may be thinking about how she wants to spend more time in a career-oriented she does some counseling mm-hmm. of her own. So I think they're both at sort of turning points of thinking about how to spend part two, perhaps. Yeah. When you get to that age, it's really about the legacy that you're going to leave. Like you do legacy work yeah. is what they call it, I think. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. No, I think about that a lot and, you know, hope we didn't leave too bad an example for them. Sounds like you led a great one. Well, let's talk about, if you're willing to, talk about, you write, while old age was once years ahead, it's now official. We're slow to consider an yeah. exit plan from our home of 47 years. Well, we're we're trying to stay where we are, and a I, lot of people have moved to assisted living or other places, and we're stubbornly staying put. My husband's a good cook. He's a gardener. He looks after things, and he I think he would just be miserable elsewhere. Mm-hmm. So we're just trying to stay where we are, and we'll see what happens. You know. Mm-hmm. Have you faced any major health challenges? Well, you know, I have atrial fibrillation, and I'm in pretty good health, and he has some heart issues. But we're both kind of trim people. We did. We weren't athletic. He was more athletic than I. But we have our aches and pains and stuff. But neither one of us have major illnesses. So That's good. That is good. Do your kids think about you know? Are they worried about you in the house as you get older? Well, they haven't said they are. Uh-huh. I mean, but I get some intimations from time to time. 
but too bad. <laughs> <laughs> Good for <Yeah>. you. <laughs> I loved how you wrote that your mom was very elusive about her age throughout your life. And so was mine. Right. You know, my mom actually used, she's going to kill me, but she won't hear this. She yeah. used to put a yeah. tape over her driver's license year of birth. So nobody yeah. would know how old she actually is. And I think. Well, even- my mother did a similar sort of thing. Yeah. So unfortunately, I'm a little bit that way. And I don't think it's vanity. I hope it's not. Because I think it's pretty obvious if you met me. I mean, you might get off a year or two, but I look my age. But mm-hmm. I also have this thing about, we have. I have a lot of friends who are younger than I am. And I've always thought, well, maybe they wouldn't be my friends if they knew how old I was. Uh-huh. Or I, I mean, I've always had this kind of funny thing about it. And my parents were a little bit that way, too. And so I guess that was part of their legacy. And I thought, well, if I can pass for 20 minutes younger than I am, I'm going to do it. <laughs> 20 minutes. <laughs> right. Well, I don't know. Well, that gets to the question about what Liz Smith, the syndicated columnist Liz Smith, wrote a blurb for your book. And she noted that the subject yeah. on the, that, that's fantastic. She noted that about the subject matter that, quote, what everyone really wants to know but is too superstitious to ask about. <laughs> so what's your take on why we're superstitious about getting old? Could- well, I think we feel marginalized, you know, and you hear that about being invisible. And, uh, I mean, to me and my father, I mean, he would be indignant if he people say, where are you? I tried to reach you or something. He said, I'm at work. And, you know, he was saying that when he was in his 80s, and he didn't see any break in his life. He wanted this continuum, you know, and he was a big, handsome man, and he wanted to be seen as somebody who was still in the world. He just didn't want to get out of the mix. I mean, he just wanted to stay in the traffic. And, I mean, I think it's so insulting in this country that sort of whether it's an age bias or in the working world or whatever it is, I mean, there's so many people that are still smart and creative and they're just put out to pasture, and it's ridiculous. I mean, it's part of the American culture, I guess, because some of the other, you know, older cultures revere older people, mm-hmm. and uh, we're just too stupid to do that. <laughs> 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 too adolescent as a culture or whatever it is. But uh, I know when my father was in a nursing home, after he had viral encephalitis, he was there for a while before he came home, and I brought photographs of him as an active man and put him around the room mm-hmm. because, I mean, he was very compromised at that point yeah. when he was so ill. And mm-hmm. I wanted people to know that he wasn't just always about to die. You mm-hmm. know, he had had a vigorous life and he had been an interesting man. And there's a divide in this country, sort of active aging, and then you get to really old and there's just like, it's frightening for one thing, and people don't want to look at it in the face. But it's our culture, young and with it or forget it, you know? Right. And there's this huge gap between the super active elders, like yeah. you said. Right. And there's like nothing in between in people's minds. Yeah. I mean, obviously, not everyone is hang gliding at age 85 or 90. Um, yeah. That's so interesting. I hope not. Yeah, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> That's so interesting. Very scary sight to look up and see. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what the answer is. I really don't. But mm-hmm. I think to do something you enjoy for for one thing, like my grandmother had generations of these boys who came back to see her, and she used to refer to my boys, and mm-hmm. uh, you know she loved it. So. If you can find something that you love to do, which is no small, that's a that's a tough task. I mean, it seems easy for some of us, but it must be really hard if you don't have any sort of burning desire to do anything yeah. or, right. you know, yeah. raise 
chickens or whatever it is. You mm-hmm. know? My father, I mean, he yeah. wanted to be seen as somebody who was still in the world. And I guess that's my feeling, too. I don't want to be told, go home and sit by the fire. And nobody has done that. But as long as you're still involved and out there, they're less likely to. But I do feel it from time to time. I mean, I've been in stores where I, you know, wander around, nobody saw me, which is fine with me, really. But you do feel like, you know, internally, you still feel young or you still have the same desires and interests. And you think people are looking at you, they don't see that anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, and I mm-hmm. thought I was a teenager, I got in trouble. I, you know, <laughs> went out late and did wild things, you know, that's still in there. Yeah, that's still in there. I love it. (laughs) But it doesn't look like it, you know. People treat me with respect. I said, you better stop that. Yeah, stop that. What do I have to do? Color my hair, get a plastic surgery? I mean, actually, my hair is white now, and I just said to my husband, every now and then I would get it, not dyed, but just sort of the low lights where they put a little dark in. Mm -hmm. And we were going to go away in a few days, and I said, do you think I should put some in? And he said, oh, I wouldn't bother, you know. But So I have that back and forth about just being completely obvious who I am and other times thinking, well, a little artifice wouldn't hurt, you know. <laughs> so I don't know. <laughs> a little artifice. I like that. We've been chatting with award-winning reporter and former UVA lecturer Elizabeth Mead Howard about her new book, Aging Famously, Follow Those You Admire to Living Long and Well. It's a collection of essays that she wrote based on interviews with a really impressive group of older adults who we can learn a lot from about living fully and joyfully. We'll have a link on the AgeWise website to Elizabeth's book and to her website, so be sure to check that out. Elizabeth, thank you so much for being on the show and for writing this fantastic book. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time and uh, your generosity. That's it for today. Thanks for supporting the AgeWise podcast by listening. If you or your company would like to take this a step further and sponsor the show, just drop a line to sponsor at agewise.com. That's sponsor at agewyz.com. And let's talk. The AgeWise podcast is produced and mixed by me, and it's distributed on the nationally syndicated Speak Up Talk Radio Network. I'm Jana Panaritis. See you next time. And remember, every caregiver has a story. I want to hear yours.